Welcome to season three of the Jesus Said Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey, Emily. Hey, Brett. It's good to see you on the screen again. We're back here. We in are the interwebs doing yes. today's episode. How are you today? I am super excited. I'm going to be honest. I binged. Um, you know, we're still in between houses right now. So we're floating from like hotel to Airbnb, and then we have to be out of this one into a next one. Well, I think we should say really, really quickly, because we don't want to be assumptive that all of our listeners follow our Instagram. We will talk about this probably at some point, but a month ago, we had a fire in our home. Yes. And so we have been displaced. Yes. um, And we're spared, and we're grateful, and we have insurance, and we know that that is a luxury Yes. Um, and a privilege, and we are and so we have grateful. Had amazing people who have really loved good us well. restoration, really awesome community giving us meals. Um, I'm very well fed. Not that I needed it after COVID. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> and we don't want enchiladas ever again. Enchiladas, so, don't bring them to our home. I've you had can keep so them. much pasta and enchiladas. I'm like, man, those were my favorite foods. I need juice now. We probably um, should do an episode on what not to bring to people. Like, you know, if you're in the thing of the meal train world and you're bringing <laughs> meals to a new mom or, you know, somebody who whose family member passed away or somebody who's been displaced by a fire, we should do an episode on what not to bring. Okay. And I have an well, exhaustive list. You're so, that is such your Enneagram eightness. I'm like, would that be good? <laughs> Um, it's honest <laughs> and it would help a brother out so that the threes aren't sitting there going, Oh my gosh, did they like my meal? Did they not like my meal? I don't know if they liked it. I don't know. I would, I, I need to try to see if they did like it. Oh my gosh. Well, let's so, get on to the episode. Yes. Okay. So what I was saying is that I, you know, when you're disrupted and displaced like this, you have to create, we kind of create home wherever we go, you know, home's kind of this ethereal thing, but as humans, you know, you, you create those spaces. Even if you were in the wilderness, you would create what would feel comfortable to you because we're creatures of comfort. And so I've had to find, I've just kind of been drifting in this Airbnb and like, so I finally was like, you know, what is my home right now is my car. I'm just going to sit in my car and do my reading and do my, cause it's just what feels the most normal to me. And so confession right before this podcast, I was still binging this probably like 20 minutes ago because I, I had to get to the end. Like I had to see, okay, so like, what's the conclusion? Like, what will our guest say to her audience? Um, Because I, I have all these questions. And I will also confess that this is probably one of my most anticipated podcast conversations because I so relate to it. Um, If you've been on our podcast for any length of time, you know that we, I mean, everything from faith to survivor stories, to addiction, to trauma, everything that impacts the work of Jesus Said Love. And this book certainly impacts our work because what we deal with at Jesus Said Love is dismantling forms of patriarchy. Um, and we didn't know that when we walked into a strip club in 2004 with a one-year-old baby, right? Like, we, we, well, we didn't no take the baby clue. into the strip club. Right. So I the didn't, baby didn't go in the strip club. I think I did that later yeah, when I wasn't yeah, was as afraid. <laughs> I did it. I, you know, I wasn't as scared later. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know that this content is so relevant to our audience, um, especially those who are faith-based. And so we are excited to have Beth Allison Barr on the Jesus Said Love podcast. Yay! Yay. You're the studio audience. Um, and Beth, you we know you as a fellow Wacoan. We know you as um, we have kids the same age at the same school. Our lives 
certainly cross over. And actually one of the first conversations I had with you about this, I invited you to be a part of a panel at Jesus said love right after the 2016 election, because it was so divisive for women. And I really wanted your voice as a historian um, to kind of inform where women, Mm -hmm. there was this huge, you know, push in the feminist movement and this big divide in the church and am I pro-life am I feminist enough and all this kind of stuff and your voice was one that was to me stuck out so much because one of the things you said I'll never forget was if we can talk about it in history and if we can see it through the lens of history we're not as afraid of it and then we can talk about those same situations, those same themes that are current, and it gives us a little more courage to confront them because we know we've lived through it. Thank you. So welcome, because you're going to, we're so excited. Your book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Okay. Release date of April 20th, guys. Now, being the only man in this conversation, <laughs> I cannot tell you how excited I am. I have not read your book at all, Beth. Yeah, he's just gonna um, he's he's gonna be in. So this. You, you're gonna get the yin and the yang today. The one who is informed and the one who is flying. Oh, you're by gonna the seat learn some pants. fun things. But I, I, I'm so excited. Emily was just kind of briefing me a little bit before we came on, so I'm I am so pumped about this. But I think it should also be said, Beth is a professor at Baylor yes. University mm-hmm. um, in the... Well, I'm in the history department, professor. but I'm also currently yes. I'm currently an associate dean in the grad school. So, yeah. That's right. And Beth is a professor of mm-hmm. medieval history. Really, that's your specific yes. area of study. And uh, I think this book is... I will, I'm going to give you some words that I wrote down that I think this book is honest it is righteously indignant it is humble it's very vulnerable and it is a book that i want to hand deliver to every uh church that we have led worship in (laughs) (laughs) over the past 20 years of being involved in and out of evangelical spaces um beth what led you to write this book. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Although before I do that, I have to say I have a, I have a good friend um, who wants to stake out Chick-fil-A's and hand it out to all the people in Chick-fil-A's. So (laughs) So anyway, so that goes, you know, like she wants to put it in church bathrooms and at Chick-fil-A's. So, you know, that's her version beautiful Almost exactly like exactly that's exactly rooms. what she wants to yeah. those are there the places go. that she wants to put it <laughs> um she'll listen to this and think that's funny so why did i write this book this is a question that um a lot of people have asked me and because in some ways this book is my life it's my whole life um from really from growing up as uh, in the evangelical church in a southern baptist world marrying a southern baptist pastor um at the same time that i started a medieval history and women's studies program at chapel hill um while my husband was at southeastern seminary with paige patterson uh which is you know really just mm-hmm. our our mm-hmm. worlds had so much tension um, between them because, you know, they were so mm. vastly different. And so the question is, is why did I, if I've lived this all of my life, why did I suddenly decide to write this book? Mm-hmm. And it really was the events of 2016. Um, it was the combination of uh, the election um, as well as the, and, you know, for those who are listening, I'm actually not a really radical person. I'm actually a pretty traditional person. And so for the election to hit me the way that it did, I think just really shows how traumatic it was um, for so many women. Um, yeah. And then at the same time, it, that was when my husband was fired. So my husband was fired um, two months before that election. And those two events together just really just pushed me over the edge. Um, in fact, I start the book off with the introduction, and it is the moment I broke. Um, it's the moment that I suddenly realized that I could no longer be silent, that I, I had to share what I knew because the church was damaging women. Uh, so in 2016, though, I didn't really know what I was going to do. If you look, I write on Pathios, which is the um, 
you know, the, the religion, the big religion blog site. And so I write on a group history blog called The Anxious Bench. And if you look back at my Anxious Bench post starting in 2016, you'll see that I do start speaking out against this. Um, the spring of 2017, for example, I start a series on Paul, on rethinking Paul. And then the next year, mm -hmm. I started a series mm -hmm. um, on disrupting Christian patriarchy. And then in 2018, mm. I got a um, I got a direct message from one of the acquisition editors at Brazos and said, "Can we talk?" And then that conversation was, mm. they were like, "We would like you to write a book um, about this." And so let's start. Mm -hmm. And then I agreed, of course, to write that book in 2019, in 2020, and that's here we are. Mm. So. Wow. And so you, when you wrote your book, you definitely had the covering of your husband as you wrote. <laughs> and so your book is yes, good. <laughs> he actually was um, a big a big part of it. Uh, in fact, when he finally read through the whole thing, because he wrote discussion questions for me for churches, because I'm actually I'm really bad at writing discussion questions, which I should be better, but I'm not. Mm. Um, so he wrote them for me. And yeah. as he was reading through it, you know, finally reading through it, he kept saying, well, why didn't you tell this story? I thought you were going to tell this story. And I'm like, it got cut, okay? You know, it's like we couldn't tell everything. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, he, there's a lot more we could have told. Well, right. Well, you tell you tell a lot, but what I appreciate about it is that it is vulnerable, but it's and and it is like I said, righteously indignant. I mean, there really is a righteous anger there, but it you're not harboring. I don't get the sense that there's this arrogant or mean spiritedness about it. You're just simply coming from it from a place that's saying, "This is my this is my understanding right. of history. This is my understanding of scripture and history." here's my understanding of experiential wisdom and what I've gone through. And here's how the two of those things, exactly. you know, cross that's, over. That's this it. is wrong. I mean, it's really just drawing conclusions. And so I think for me, as somebody who appreciates truth telling, I, it's, it is very hard for me to understand when even in the kindest way, you are just trying to present truth, how, deeply offensive it is to some individuals. I mean, you, you are, you, you this, this book is disruptive to right. some who want to hang on to, um, idols or to ideologies that are just, that's, yeah, incorrect. No, that's, you know, another point, I didn't tell this story in the book. Um, but when it first happened, you know, I was really in shock. In fact, when y'all had me on that first panel, I say I, I was still pretty much in shock. I was still sort of in trauma mode at that time. Yeah. And for our list, yes. And for our listeners, did you already, I had to go get the, the doorbell <laughs> was knocking, but did you explain that there was a leave, a departure in your church's Yes, yes. That my husband, and, did you explain that? And my that? husband got okay. fired. Um, you know, there were a lot of things kind of in that, but the, the trigger was when my husband, when we tried to get a woman to teach youth Sunday school. And that was the triggering event right. that led to uh, his dismissal. Um, a, a, a woman teaching yes. Sunday school resulted in yes, your husband's I mean, it's, termination. It's tied up with the other part of this is that in asking for a woman to do this and then not being happy with the answer we were given led to challenging pastoral authority. And so that was, you know, those, those uh. things um, led, to, led to him being uh, fired in a, pretty, um, in a pretty difficult way, especially because mm -hmm. we, weren't, we couldn't tell mm -hmm. anyone why um, for a long time. And that was yeah. just, you know, we were silenced. And that is really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those were really difficult days for both of us. Um, and then yes. I asked you to come on a panel and put your face on a screen. And I had you no, I really have didn't idea. have an idea. I, yeah. And it this was, was, it was happening. Just, um, so it, during that time, I remember another point, you know, I told you the point that in the beginning in the introduction, I described this scene where we're at the church still. And they're like, they have this table set up for us to say bye to us. And I just, 
it's like at that moment, something just broke inside of me because the way that they did it, the way that, and I mean, I, I really did. Probably everybody who was in that foyer will remember me doing this. You know, I just turned around and I just walked out. And it was very clear that I was yeah. very unhappy um, with what had happened. And it yeah. was, so that was the moment when I broke. About a week or two later, I got a text message from someone who I had been very close to, who essentially the text message was like, I'm really sorry this happened, but it's God's will. And so we just need to sort of make the best of it. Mm. And that was the second, I remember this anger inside. And you just said, it wasn't like I was angry at the person. It's just like, this is wrong. Mm. This whole thing is wrong. Yeah. And women yeah. need to know. I mean, I don't want my daughter growing up in this. I don't want my son growing up in this. Right. Um, so it really is. It was right. that moment where I was like, this has to stop. People have to know mm -hmm. what's really true. So. Yes. Okay. So here's where I want to walk through kind of your, in a nutshell, and we can't even come close to doing the richness that's in this book. I mean, you just, you're gonna have to read the book. I really feel like anyone who grew up Southern Baptist and Presbyterian, uh, Reformed churches, Bible churches, um, anything that would be constant, you know, that would fall under the category of evangelical anything or Protestant. Complementarianism. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. And even if you're interested in feminism, I, th I think this, even if you don't come from a church background, this might give you a really good perspective on, on, you know, yes. where this develops. So let's define for our listeners, because honestly, the evangelical church right now is, is under uh, a magnifying glass on a lot of issues. There's a lot of ideologies that are being challenged within the evangelical church. What does it mean to be an oh, evangelical? Oh, that Define question, yes. So what is I'm going to deflect <laughs> to a uh, friend of mine and fellow scholar who wrote a book that I also recommend called Jesus and John Wayne, um, and it's Kristen Cobez Dumay. Mm. And she talks about that there are really, there's really two evangelicals. There is the imagined evangelicals, what we think evangelicalism is, and then there are, there's the historical reality of evangelicalism. The imagined evangelicalism um, is what I would probably be defined, and this is actually why I still, I like the imagined evangelicalism. I know I'm an idealist, and so I believe in these principles. Mm -hmm. um, all of my students know, you know, it's sort of defined by what we call the, the Bebbington quadrilateral, which is a scholarly whole thing, but it's people who believe, whose beliefs focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, um, in on the truth of the Bible and sharing what they know about the gospel, Jesus, um, in mm. a evangelistic missionary way. You know, we are supposed to tell other people mm. about the love of Christ, um, mm -hmm. and very much focusing too on this. Uh, you know, that the Bible is the sole source for authority. So that's what, that's idealistically mm -hmm. is what evangelical is. But the reality is, is that mm -hmm. the people who began to espouse this um, were born in the historical world of really the 17th and the 18th century, which was, um, def you know, this, which was defined by European imperialism, British imperialism, which means that mm -hmm. in their approach to other cultures, to other races, that there is an innate belief that white people are better. Um, so evangelicalism has mm -hmm. roots in this imperial attitude, which is also mm -hmm. connected to white supremacy. We don't like to talk about that, but it is. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why the Southern Baptist um, denomination was founded, because they didn't want to give up slavery. I mean, and so you yeah. can see this imperial attitude coming yeah. out. Um, and then it's also within it is embedded this gender hierarchy uh, that is also inherited mm -hmm. from its early modern roots. Um, so those mm -hmm. that's that's the reality of evangelicalism. That's why we have a whole lot of black Christians who identify with what I called the imagined um, evangelicalism. You know, they, the crucifixion mm -hmm. and resurrection of Jesus, um, the, the foundation of the Bible, mm -hmm. as well as the evangelism impulse and the activism involved mm -hmm. in that. They believe in that, but they don't identify with evangelicalism because it is rooted historically um, in this hierarchical and racist uh, 
you know, background. So. Yeah. And so what is, when we're talking about the truth of the Bible, you know, it's really interesting. Some of the things that you walk us through as your readers in the book, because you, you talk about this shift in language and this shift in, um, you know, communicating about women and household codes and all these things and these little words that may have been taken out here and there. And so in, in an idealized way, what does it mean to ascribe to the truth of scripture as an evangelical question, Emily. Um, and it's one too, that I don't think enough, uh, evangelical Christians grapple with. So what Mm -hmm. it means, I mean, I think, um, I think what it means, and is there a delay on my, I'm sorry. Uh, I, well, okay, I don't know. I'll delay, keep going. No, no. I are see you hearing you. it now? It's fine. I'm sorry. I okay. see you talking while I was okay. talking, so I okay. couldn't tell. No, no, that's okay. I'm sorry. Um, the, what the, when we think about what the Bible is, I think a lot of evangelicals, we don't really understand that even though the Bible um, is, and I would say the Bible is completely trustworthy. And the, uh, the glorious thing about the Bible is that for the past you know, 2,000 years, despite all of the translations, all of the things that it's gone to, that it is still pretty much 90, 95% the same. Um, that, you know, it tells the story of Jesus. It tells how God reached down to humanity mm-hmm. and gave us a savior. And that's the story of the Bible. And it comes through no matter what translation you have. But then the other side of that is, mm-hmm. is that the Bible, even though it is God's word, it has always been filtered through the, the, it has always been filtered through the hands of people and the translators and everybody Mm. who comes to the Bible to translate it carries with them the world that they live in. And there is no such thing as Mm. an objective translation of the Bible. Everybody has carried some perspective to them. And the two most common, um, the two most popular translations of the Bible today are the KJV and then the growing ESV, the English Standard Version. And both of these translations and all of the reiterations that came from the English Bible um, were translated in a world that excluded women from language and that could not conceive of women as being leaders in the church. And so they wrote women out of leadership in the church. But Beth, (laughs) hold on. (laughs) <laughs> it is the inspired, infallible word of God. You forgot inerrant. Hello, Mr. Southern oh, Baptist boy. Yes, you forgot Sorry. the most important, politically charged word. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, I, I, and I, I do, yeah. I do say that kind of tongue in cheek. But, but I also think you know, in my own, in my own journey of realizing, whoa, I've been taught a bill of goods that maybe isn't quite as accurate as God set out for it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you help someone reconcile who's been taught their whole life, hey, this book in your hand? Like, I remember growing up, like, if the Bible fell off the table in Sunday school, somebody was getting in trouble because that was the yes. word of God. Mm. And I'm like, it's just a book that so, we bought at the bookstore. Yeah, I, mm. I have a lot. There's a lot. Um, you know, as I said, on the one hand, I do firmly believe throughout this whole process in my life, I have never doubted my faith. Um, And part of that is because I'm not afraid to ask questions. I think God can always take our questions Mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid. And I have never asked a question that made me doubt my belief in the story of the Bible and the salvation Mm -hmm. of Jesus. Um, Mm -hmm. What I have come to doubt, however, is this, the way that we interpret certain passages, you know, as a historian, Mm. you cannot remove the translation from the historical circumstances that translated it and, or even the historical Mm -hmm. circumstances in which it was created. And one of the beautiful things I think about the Bible, and I think God did this on purpose, is that he didn't, this isn't, when he gave us his word, he gave it through people who wrote it down. And he allowed those people to express their own personalities. And I mean, this is why the the four gospels are all different. They're all told from four Mm -hmm. different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he enabled Mm -hmm. us from the very beginning, God enabled us to see 
how we were going to approach the Bible differently and we were going to come at it with different mm. ideas and different um, things that we emphasized. Um, so I don't think this bothers mm. God, but this bothers us. You know, we have, as humans, we are, yeah. we are so, especially 20, 21st century Americans, um, we fear uncertainty. And Christians fear mm -hmm. if something, if they see something in a translation or something that's different in the Bible, then they're like, oh my gosh, that means the Bible's not true. And that's not actually yeah. biblical. That is evangelical fear. Right. <laughs> and so, um, in mm. fact, right. I was, I, I was told one time, I was told one time, if you can't believe Genesis 1 through 9, you can't believe one through any three, of the Bible. I thought. No, it was one through nine. Know. Oh, okay. Well, I... Mm. Then the rest of it, you can't it, believe the, any the of it. The problem with that is not that you can't believe Genesis one through nine. It's just that the people who say that say you have to believe Genesis one through nine the way they believe it. And if you don't believe it their way, mm. then you, you don't believe in the Bible. And so that is, that's actually... Mm -hmm. The problem it's inerrancy, and that's why I have a trouble with the word inerrancy. On the one hand, I totally believe the Bible is completely trustworthy. Um, you know, as I said, there's nothing in the Bible mm -hmm. that makes me doubt my faith um, or that I have trouble, you know, mm -hmm. really trouble with. Um, I have a lot of questions, but they don't, you know, they don't trouble me. But um, <laughs> but inerrancy comes with it that you have to interpret the Bible a certain way, and if you don't interpret it that mm -hmm. way then you are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. So, mm. yeah. That okay, Beth. Yeah, and this is, this is the hard part. So here we are in 2021 now, and we have an understanding in the evangelical church and in large sectors of Christian community that believe that female and, quote, biblical womanhood looks a certain, certain way. How... Did we get there, um, yes. which is what your book lays out the case for? Um, it, it really takes us through biblical uh, texts and then historical texts. But I think one of the most, I think uh, maybe a pivot for me was understanding um, that the importance of rethinking these household duties Paul? and these marriage roles. Yes. Paul, can you talk to us about why we need to reimagine or, or, or right. just understand? Yeah, no. So it's not even reimagining it so much as it so, is understanding uh, when it. When I first decided to write the book, I told Jeb, I said, I'm not going to talk about Paul. I'm not going to talk about that. I said, this has been, you know, this has become a stalemate between um, egalitarians and complementarians and all they keep doing is mm -hmm. going back and forth over the same texts and arguing with each other about those same texts and I said and the problem is is that you know they're not complementarians are not don't understand that the way they interpret the text and even some egalitarians that the way that they interpret the text is because of what they carry to the text and so I said until we unpack what they mm -hmm. carry to the text we're not going to be able to move that stalemate forward. So my original idea was to write the book to help people understand what they carried to the text that made us get in this gridlock. And Jeb was sitting at his computer and he was typing. He didn't even look at me. He just said, it's not going to work. And I was like, what do you mean it's not going to work? And he said, you've got to show them why they can read Paul yeah. differently. And he said, otherwise, they're not going to buy yeah. anything else you say. And so I said, oh, okay. So um, I spent the Paul chapter and the Reformation chapter were the two that I drafted the most, yes. that I spent the most time, you know, rewriting and rewriting um, because they were the most critical pieces to my argument. And the Paul chapter, mm -hmm. essentially what it is, and this is one of the reasons is that uh, I think I say it in the chapter somewhere, but there is so much sound scholarship. There is so much scholarship that we have had by sound Christian historians, not people who are trying to take out passages and say, oh, this actually wasn't in the Bible. None of that. Sound, sound scholars who take the Bible and all that's in it and read it within its context. And their conclusion is, is that Paul 
that, and Beverly Gaventa, I think, says it really well. She says, there is no grounding for complementarity here. Um, it is simply, it is mm -hmm. something that we carried to the text. And a really good, you know, mm -hmm. if you look at Paul's entire message, um, what Paul is calling Christians to is freedom in Christ, is we are free. We are free right. from the things that bound us in Roman culture. And this is what I argued about the household codes. And it's not really my argument. It's the argument I'm standing on the shoulder, shoulders of all of these biblical scholars. Um, it's even something, you know, Rachel Held Evans actually went after this. And I know that her mm -hmm. name, a lot of people in the evangelical world are very hostile um, to it. But, I, you know, Mm -hmm. She was right about this. You know, she was right. Um, <laughs> right. And the fact is, is that when you mm. put the household codes, and I used her words because I just think they're really good. Um, you know, she says that, that essentially what Paul has done is given us a Jesus remix of the household codes. And so he's uh -huh. taken them. He's, you know, essentially this is what you're supposed to do. But in Christ, this is what we do. And in Christ, those household codes are dramatically different. And we're talking about wives be subject to your husband, slaves be subject to your masters, children obey your parents. Um, you know, those, the household codes, and they're, they're repeated in several places throughout the New Testament. And one of the pieces, the historical pieces that really shows how we have misread these passages. When we interpret like Ephesians 5, when we say that this means that mm -hmm. women, wives have to submit to their husbands, which is why we say it in our marriage, although I didn't say it even then, I didn't say mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Me either. But we took it out, you know, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but the reason... I actually think I said you? I submit oh, no, to God. We just, we just both I, read the I same... I did. We just both had the same vowels. So anyway, it was funny. <laughs> but... Um, so the reason that we miss it, one of the pieces that really helps us understand that we've missed the point about those passages, if we think about the historical context of the early church and in the Roman world and um, in the ancient world, the hierarchy between the head of household and the women and the children and the slaves um, was so much, you know, there's, I'm thinking of nuance. There's always nuance in this. So I'm just giving you broad brush. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that if something, if there was a important text it would have been given to the men of the household. It would have been given to the um, to the male household heads, whose then responsibility would have been to disseminate mm. it um, to everyone else. But in the household codes we see in the New Testament, the text is given to all the people. It, and in fact, we know that the early, household, right. the early Christian church, they all met together. This is one of the things that was subversive about them, um, is women, lower class people, slaves, children, um, all met together. We see this tension in Romans where we see the, you know, the, the culturally important Gentile believers now mixing with these mm. Jewish believers who are from the lower mm. classes and it causes tension between mm. them. And Paul says, y'all stop it. We are one in Christ Jesus. Mm. And, and Paul's message is yeah. we are one in Christ Jesus over and over again. So and so one of the things that I thought was interesting, too, that you bring up is that so when we're reading that, because if you've been schooled in in a good, you know, Bible believing church, as we would call it, if, <laughs> if, if you have gone to a Bible believing church and you've been in a youth <laughs> retreat or you've been yes. in a premarital counseling, um, you know, class, then you are read that scripture as Paul is saying as a right. command Wives yes, submit to exactly. your husband. But what you're proposing that scholars and historians say is that Paul right. wasn't writing it that way. He was basically saying, this is what the world well, says. And but I say from Jesus, yes, we see you know, this. A really critical piece is the separation in Ephesians 5. You know, The wives submit to your husband is connected to the verse above it, which we separate out. And it's... Right. Um, submit right. to each other as to the Lord. To and those another. actually go together. That is one sentence. Um, and we separate mm -hmm. it out. And what it does is it separates mm -hmm. Paul's meaning. And Paul's, you know, because mm -hmm. what Paul's saying, he says, look, yes, in the Roman world, wives submit to their husbands, but in God's world, we submit to each other. We all submit to, you know, this is our posture. And then he calls 
husbands to an even higher standard where he says, you know, you, you know this, that you have authority in the Roman world, you have authority over your wives, but I call you mm. to love your li- wives the way that Christ loves the church, mm. which means giving your life for her. And this is often read in the context of evangelical, sort of like the servant leadership thing, but that's not Paul's point. Paul is essentially saying mm. in the Roman world, you have this authority of life and death. But in the world of Jesus, right. you're supposed to give your life up. And so he's being compared. Yeah, sort, yeah, I mean, he's taking what's familiar to them. The household codes were background noise mm-hmm. in the Roman world. Everybody knew them. Yeah. And so Paul is saying, look, here, here is what we, yes, we do have to fit into the Roman world, but we're going to do it Jesus style. Um, and the Jesus style mm-hmm. is that we're going to bring everyone into this conversation and that we are going to, um, we are going to make sure that everyone is valued in this conversation. And we are going to make sure we understand the limits that we all submit to each other. Um, that husbands, you mm. maybe you have this authority over your wives legally, but I'm calling you to love your wives and give your life up for them the way mm. that Jesus did. And so, I mean, it's just dramatically different. This is, it's dramatically different. And we miss it. Mm-hmm. This is so good. This is so good to hear because here, confession. I have always struggled with Paul. I yes. have been mad at him for many, many years to the degree that I'll never forget being at a beach house in Galveston, Texas. I'm sitting next to a friend of mine who wrote his dissertation on one Pauline letter in, in seminary. And I said, you know what I've decided? I'm, I'm just not going to read Paul for a while. I'm going to take <laughs> a break. I'm only going to read Jesus because Jesus and Paul seem so contradictory when you read them the way that I was taught and ingrained to read him. He just sounds pissed off and it's like, okay, he was a Jewish Pharisee. Well, now he's being a Christian Pharisee and he's single (laughs) and he's mad about it and he doesn't have sex and he's just bound up in this, keeping women down. So he's pissed at women for some reason. And we can, so I've kind of, so then I was like, well, just forget him. I'm not even going to listen to him. So to hear you bring this to the table is a complete game changer because Paul, in fact, was was bringing Jesus, who was radical, who did blow all these ideas up and right. included everyone. He's, yep. He, Paul is that's exactly putting right. that on the table. You know, and that's why, I mean, I, my, I start that Paul chapter off with a quote, you know, something I hear all the time from my students, and it's essentially what you just said, I hate Paul. And um, you know, one, of the mm-hmm. early, one of the earlier uh, feminist theologians who first tried to figure out this tension between Jesus and Paul, she actually argued that there was this early Jesus movement that essentially set women free, that women could do all of these things. And then there was shortly thereafter, there was a second wave within the early church that Paul represents that began to try to put women back in their places. And so that was sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to make sense of what we see. And mm-hmm. really, if you actually put Paul within his historical context um, and we read him not through the lens that we've been trained, not through the lens of patriarchy, mm-hmm. but we read him through his historical context. Right. Um, what we find is that Paul's teachings align with Jesus's teachings. And Paul, like Jesus, is mm-hmm. setting women free. Um, you know, it's just a really good mm-hmm. example of this is the one that I use in the text, which is First Corinthians, in the book, which is First Corinthians 14, where he says, women be silent. And um, many scholars, you know, this is, a, this is a text that we have forgotten how it's been interpreted. And many very good scholars in the 70s and the 80s um, wrote, they were like, hey, everyone, the reason Paul's saying women be silent and ask your husbands at home is because that's the Roman law. That's, you know, it echoes everywhere in ancient texts. Um, you know, I quoted one of the instances of it, but it's not the only instance. It's all around. And this is an instance mm. where Paul is quoting this. He's saying, you know, women be silent. This is what you hear. And then after it in the text, there's this particle. It says, what? Or did the word of God originate with you? Mm. And what these scholars have said, mm. this is another instance where Paul is quoting the world around him and then saying, what are y'all doing? Why are you dragging your mm. pagan world, your Roman world 
back into the world of Jesus. Okay, so I want this is this is important because what you make the case for is that patriarchy and hierarchy yes, is exactly worldly. It. It's and and so it is not representing Jesus or Christian faith or the origin of God's heart and God's intention for humanity for us to ascribe exactly right to patriarchy. That's exactly what I'm arguing. That is not that that is not what's I know. being taught. Beth. I know. I I I stand here. <laughs> I know as a you know. Survivor of the worst of complementarianism, and since you made it to the end of my book, you you know what that is. Um, so, yes. you know, and that's really why I wrote this book. I, I didn't write it to validate mm. what happened to us. I didn't write it for anger or to try to get revenge. I wrote it because this has to stop. This is not Christian and it right. damages people. It damages the very people. It damages our witness. Um, it damages our daughters right. to grow up. Thank you, oh. this. and it damages our sons to think that they are innately yes. made above someone else. I mean, yeah. that's that's Ooh. what patriarchy is. It says that simply because of how you're oh. born, some people are better than other people, and that's racism too. Mm. Yes. Well, I mean, let's talk about my God. Let's talk about modesty. <laughs> I mean, yes. I've so gone on this tangent. I've gone on this tangent so many times on this podcast and in, in other series, but um, I, I, the fact that at church camp, girls have to wear one piece and a t-shirt, and guys can strut around and whatever the hell they want to, uh, and the assumption is girls right. don't lust, and um, and that guys <laughs> do, and because guys do, it's the girl's fault, and it's the girl's yep. responsibility to keep well, that sounds like another religion. It does, if doesn't I'm not it, mistaken. Brett? Sounds like <laughs> <laughs> okay, but Beth, tell us before we go there. Tell us the story. We've given our listeners lots of information. I want you to take us into that story oh, sure. of modesty when you're like when okay. you're the church counselor. Give, so, give yes, us so the I'll snippet give you a little bit. Story. And I have actually a lot of these stories. Um, I was <laughs> trying to tell ones that were distant enough in the past. Uh, so this one's kind of distant in my past when I was pretty young as a pastor's wife. And we went to a unnamed church camp. That's the, we only ever went to it once. And it was, um, and it had sort of a, it was going through a moment where it was clamping down on sort of these purity regulations and modesty regulations about what women were supposed to wear. And we had um, several girls in that youth group and, um, you know, two of them in particular were extremely beautiful girls. I mean, they really were mm. beautiful girls. Um and it, by all, you know, standards of American sort of thing. Um, and right, right, right. So, mm -hmm. and they, and it was, it was really hot at this youth camp, you know, we could think. And mm. almost all of our girls, <laughs> all, they brought tank tops. Um, and some of them had like the spaghetti mm -hmm. strap tank tops that they also wore the special bras that were made to wear with spaghetti. I mean, y'all know, y'all have daughters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the spaghetti strap mm -hmm. bras so that it right. all kind of blends together. So they had those. There wasn't anything, it wasn't showing anything, you know, they were just, they were showing their shoulders was essentially what it is. And mm -hmm. I got, I got into no. this battle with the, with the leaders of that youth camp. And Jeb can kind of attest because I, I really did. I almost got us kicked out, I think, of this youth camp because I was so <laughs> angry that they were telling those girls that they couldn't wear those. They told them that they couldn't wear them. Um, and essentially, you know, at the end of it, they finally told us that if they, if the girls didn't cover up and wear t-shirts um, that covered their shoulders, that essentially we couldn't stay at the camp. And it just, you know, and they like yes. delivered a box of extra large yes, t-shirts to your door. It was, like it was, put these was, on. It was here's it was a tunic. Insane. And I still remember sitting in that talk. It was one of the I have all these moments in my life where I was silenced. And this was one of them where I was sitting right. and I remember sitting there and I, w I was really young. I was in my early 20s. And so I'm sitting there and I remember I had my head down because I couldn't look at them and I was sitting on my hands as they're telling 
they're telling these girls and they had they bring in one of the youth one of the counselor's boyfriends to tell this to say you know when guys look at girls that you know they sometimes can't control what they think and this is ungodly for them so why don't you protect them by covering up your body and Mm. don't you want to save yourself you know your beauty for your husband and so cover up I mean it's just and I was just sitting there you know with my hands underneath me and I was so angry um, because I was like, this is telling these girls that it's their responsibility to control the sexual impulses of boys. <laughs> and I was just like, that. I mean, that's just, that's wrong. It's dangerous. It leads to rape culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, y'all know yes. that. Yes. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> we do. Yes, we we do know that, but but we know that not just in ministry. We know that in uh, Christian schools. I think that we've encountered that, and that's not necessarily private for us. I mean, you know, we we're a, a very vocal about what we're asking our women to do and what we're at. And so we, I think that the gift of Jesus said love has been that it's it's. While I haven't spent my head in books, I've spent it yes. in strip clubs and on the streets. The same conclusion can be drawn either way, whether we're looking and reading about history or whether we're having lived experiences with victims and and people who have been disenfranchised and women who've been silenced over and over again. Um, the same conclusion, right? Because the truth rises to the top. It does. The you truth know, just rises yeah. to the top. And, and historically, too... Um, What's crazy about this is that in every culture, every culture tries to control women's bodies. I mean, this is a historical constant. Everybody tries to control women's bodies. And they all come up with different things that are sexualized. And so we think about in ancient China, what became sexualized was women's feet. And this led to foot binding and all of this horrible, you know, and so it's Mm. like, it doesn't really, the problem is not women's bodies. Um, You know, Americans, the problem is not women's bodies. (laughs) The problem is the way we perceive mm. women's bodies as property and belonging mm. um, and mm-hmm. something. And so when we don't see people, women as human, when we see them as these sexualized mm. figures, mm. that's what leads to these problems. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter what parts of women's bodies are showing. <laughs> that's not the problem. Right. <laughs> well, and I would take it, I right. would even take it a step further and say, you know, women's bodies for my yes. gratification. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of, it's just yes. automatically assumed, you know, as a man, yeah. I need you to dress a certain way. And, and why, what? When, well, I mean, when? yes. So there is a shift. And so talk about that shift a little yeah. bit in the reformation between the value of a woman and how we, how we've moved now um, into these roles of like domestic, yes. Uh, marriage and worth, so worthiness one of, of the a woman. Big, in fact, I've just been reading some more on this today and in, in between doing my administrative stuff. Um, but one of the big shifts that happened and one of the big arguments, like for example, I will see people be like, well, of course women can't be pastors today because women couldn't be priests and women can't be priests. And so there's this continuity in you know history that women can't lead because women have never lead. And one of the big, and actually I would argue mm-hmm. that that continuity proves that biblical womanhood isn't biblical because the reasons for why Mm. women can't preach or lead in church have not remained constant. They change. Every Mm. culture comes up with a different reason why women can't do this. Um, And so, you know, Mm. in the, in the ancient and early in the medieval, medieval Europe, um, the reason women couldn't do this in Catholicism, the reason women couldn't be priests was because something was wrong with their bodies. Their bodies were innately inferior to male bodies. Um, and this also is tied up with the impurity of women's bodies. Um, and so they couldn't go, they couldn't, they couldn't officiate at the altar because something was wrong with their bodies. And this is built upon Aristotelian, you know, ancient Greek ideas that women yes. are deformed men. Um, is essentially what it is. And so right. it, so that was the reason why women, that's, that's the primary reason women weren't supposed to be priests in the medieval world. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that the medieval world also believed that women could overcome their bodies. 
um, they could deny their mm. sex, and this enabled them to have masculine authority. So we do have women leading and preaching um, and in those roles mm -hmm. because of this belief that women could overcome their sex. Um, when we get to the Reformation era, there starts to be a big shift, and women's bodies are no longer, you know, with Reformation theology, women's bodies are no longer impure. They are made in the image of God, just like men. But the problem is, is that if you really follow through with that theology, it means women and men are equal in Christ. They are made the same in Christ. They can do whatever God has gifted them to do. So we had to come up with a new reason why women couldn't lead in church. Mm. Um, and so this is where we begin mm -hmm. to have these arguments on ontological, dif I mean, on difference, this difference that women are made so different from men that they're what they like to do, their jobs, um, you know, what their bodies are designed to do are fundamentally different from men. And so women are designed, and there even begin to be arguments in the Enlightenment world, that women's brains were made differently, that women were designed for household mm. and babies and caring for the home, and that they were mm. intellectually unable to do things outside, mm. you know, political, legal thinking. I mean, if you watch any Jane Austen, mm -hmm. so, I mean, we, we see she's fighting mm -hmm. against this tension too, you know, that says mm. that women mm -hmm. can't do these things. And so this leads to this idea that women belong in the home, um, that women are made, that women are divinely made for the home and men are divinely made for work. Mm. Um, the problem is, is that mm. this is all grounded in really a shift in the, in the economic world. You know, it's not grounded in the Bible. It's grounded in the change of work. Right. When work begin to move outside the home and we begin to also have mm. education, um, universities opening, you know, becoming more common. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, this is where it's grounded. It's grounded in these historical shifts. It's not grounded in the Bible. Mm. Um, it's also grounded in the continuity of patriarchy, which says that men mm -hmm. are superior to women. So it's just the arguments about that change. I think it's also interesting that you bring up how um, women's chastity was, you know, so important. And then along the Reformation, there's this um, women are now these like enticing, adulterous uh, longing. And, and there, there's this like, an interesting shift to now after the reform post reformation, it was like noble woman is married and she's bound right. to the home. Yeah. Th there's something about that that intrigues me. I think moving from like keeping, I, we're, we've even just like watched Bridgerton, which is just, <laughs> I know like historical I fiction. It, it's so not I really, I mean, it's, it's well, yeah. So, you know, but even listening to um, some of those characters and following along the story of how little women knew about their own bodies and how little women knew about sex yes. and the act of sex. So then they're duped yes. kind of once they get into marriage. And so then they're kind of a captive to whatever the man tells them about sex or whatever, you know, so there's... And that that shift really does such a disservice, not just to not just to women. And I think that's part of your point, too. It does a disservice yeah. to men. It does a disservice to all of us when yes. we subjugate one. Yes. I have a question. I'm a man. I have a question. Because um, I'm hearing a theme here as I sit back and listen to you all talk. And it's this continued idea that even historically speaking, there's all this, for better or for worse, uh, emphasis yes. on women's bodies. Could it be that women were told to be home and do the homely duties so that they might not be sexualized by other men? In other words, I can control my wife and her not committing adultery or having an affair against me by keeping her in the home, keeping her pregnant, keeping her doing the domestic duties while I go out because I'm thinking about Bridgerton. All the <laughs> all the wives 
right. or either pregnant or they're, you know, they're running the, the palace or the house or whatever they're in. But then there's those little prostitutes out there who mm-hmm. don't have men, they don't have babies, or yeah. if they do have babies, they don't have them. They've been, you know, ushered off to an yeah. orphanage or whatever. And they, yeah, and they can't break rank right, right now because yes. they're defiled. Because they're yeah. defiled yes. and they're low on the totem pole. But man, they're running with the with the big guys. Yep. No. Mm. Yeah. So so could it be that a lot of this comes yes. back to sex? Um, That's what okay. I'm so. One of the arguments about where does patriarchy come from in the beginning is that it actually comes with the rise of civilization in which we begin to have these, um, the separation of labor and this, and also the control of property when property becomes important. And so the control with, if your family is going to control property, then it go, it, you need to be, know who your family is. Um, and women are really the only mm. people who truly know who the father of their babies are. I mean, DNA now has exploded that, but for most of the history of the world, um, women were the only people who truly knew who the fathers of their children were. And so this, there's an anxiety. There is indeed this male anxiety to control uh, women to make sure that they know that they are the fathers of their children. And so this is definitely, and part of it with, mm. you know, with when property, when we start to control property and pass property is when we start to see women being, uh, women also being controlled. Um, and so, yes, so I think you mm. do see this theme, this theme of controlling women and controlling women's bodies. Um, and there's all sorts of different theories that we come up with for why we need to control women and control women's bodies. And that's essentially patriarchy. <laughs> so, yes. Mm. Okay. Well, let me, let me read as, as we're kind of nearing the end. I, this was something that was really important, I think, um, and I don't know if this is the right page. So, because I know this is a pre-release copy. So I don't know if this is going to yeah. be somewhere mm-hmm. around page 150, 152, um, where you are beginning to discuss sanctifying yes. subordination of how the church really began to sanctify subordination. And, um, you said, as we discussed during the Reformation era, the ideological touchstone of holiness changed. Instead of women finding holiness through virginity, they now found it in the marriage bed. Most sacred vessels were no longer the valiant men and women who rose above their sex to serve God. The most sacred institution was now the holy household. And then you say, patriarchy defined the lives of both medieval women and early modern women, But at some point across that great divide, patriarchy Mm -hmm. shape-shifted. What do you, is is what we're talking about the shape-shifting nature of patriarchy, of how it changes and bends and subjugates women according to what the culture needs, which is why it's not biblical. I mean, that's clearly... um, Sorry about that. I told him not to, but which is why it <laughs> is one of the, you know, that's, it's tied to history. Um, the reasons that we come up with mm-hmm. why women can't lead and why women can't um, teach and why women need to remain in the home. Um, the reason that we do that is tied to the, the culture around us. I mean, we can very clearly see this. We can, ch- we can trace out these historical shifts. Um, and what's in, while we often use biblical texts to support it, the way we use biblical texts changes across time. And so one of the things that mm-hmm. I also point out, you know, part of that shape-shifting is it's across that early modern divide from the medieval world that we begin to see Paul being used to enforce the subordination of women. Um, medieval people knew mm-hmm. Paul. They did sometimes quote the women be silent and the women not preach passages, but they didn't do it nearly as much as we do today. Um, it very rarely mm. appears in medieval Middle English sermons that I read. I mean, it's, it's crazy how little mm. it appears. And when we actually do see it appear, we often see women responding to it, saying why it doesn't apply to them. And so it's actually really funny where women, mm. and, and we also see um, many, you know, 
theologians writing saying, okay, yes, this does apply to some women, but it actually only applies to wives. So as long as you're not married, you're not bound by Paul. So, I mean, it's, it's very differently mm. interpreted and not nearly as emphasized. Mm. And what we begin to see after the Reformation era is we begin to see this, you know, full scale, um, use of these Pauline passages mm. to mm. proclaim that the best women are married women under the authority of their husbands, um, which is also when we begin to see this, um, the, uh, the negative portrayals of single women. Um, you know, this is where we get the spinster mm -hmm. and the old maid, you know, sort of this idea mm -hmm. that women who aren't married are not doing what God has called them to do. And this is definitely a very wow. uh, Protestant European idea uh, that is not grounded in the Bible. Mm. It is grounded in the early mm. modern world. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah, those single women need a covering. <laughs> we were have that covering, you know, you got to get it in community right. or your church or something. I love the way when you, as you wrap the book, you say hierarchy gives birth to patriarchy and patriarchy gives birth to the abuse of both sex and power. I mean, in a nutshell, here is why hierarchy and patriarchy are antithetical to the modeling of, yes. of Jesus's life. That's exactly it. And it's just, um, it's just so, I think when you lay out all the evidence, I think that's what, with the spatterings of stories that I'm super familiar with and can relate to, but the laying out of the evidence, it's like you really are putting the language and you've done a lot of hard work for a lot of us who don't spend our lives learning yes. about yes. medieval history. And, and I appreciate, I'm so, so grateful for this work because it really will be one that I can, um, It'll be like a reference, kind of like Sarah yeah. Bessie's Jesus Feminist. You know, I I go back to that and and remember. And I think this will be a book that I come back to and reference and remember who I am and some of the women, the history of women that you talk about in there who are championing me um, to keep going right. when I want to give up. And, um, and I need those women. I need to remember the women in Christian history, Christian history, not, not just yes. history in general, but women who were following God, who were devoutly Christian, who had encounters with the Holy Spirit, who were directed and led sometimes away yes. from their families to accomplish the mission of God. Um, it is a beautiful, beautiful work that you have gifted us with. And it's very Thank you. timely, Beth. Um, I, I, I can't wait to read it, <laughs> Beth. And, and I, I'm going to read it, but I will. And, I, and it's coming at a great time because I'm in the middle of reading a book on audible right now by a guy. I won't say, but, but when I say this, you, everybody will know who it is. Uh, a guy who was a really, um, prolific, um, evangelical pastor who then started asking questions and now he's called heretic. But anyways, he um, he wrote a book called How to Read the Bible, and um, he's mm. just enlightening me on. I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is historical context is. is so very important, and that's one thing that we don't do in the church enough. I don't, at least in my own experience, you don't get a lot of historical background. It's here's what it says, and here's what you right. need to do about it, and you need to do this, and we're not reading in the lens of this was interpreted in the medieval times and what was going on or, or, or what was happening right. in the Roman empire yes. at this point, culturally, you know what I'm saying? And I think those that's so very important and I'm excited to dig in your book because I know that you bring that to the table. You're not mm -hmm. just bringing some angsty, um, abolitionist, you know, raising the flag of feminine, that, that picture that makes everybody so frustrated you're bringing historical context to an issue that matters. And I think you're saying I'm tired of being kept down. Yeah, no, why. I mean, I think if you summed up my two major points in it, I think is on the one hand is that evangelical Christians are simply not taught the reality of our history. And the reality of our history is that women mm -hmm. have always um, taught, led, preached, and even in the time of Jesus. And then the second, um, the, you know, I think... 
The second big point that I would like evangelical women to hear is, and men too, is that you can be faithful to the Bible and not believe in complementarianism. Um, you are not outside the bounds of orthodoxy if you do not accept complementarianism. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that I think the fear that complementarianism is the only way to interpret the biblical text is what keeps women from challenging it. And so I want them to hear that mm. that is not biblical truth. Mm. Wow, mm. this has been so good. And I, and I do want to say this because we've used the word, but we have not defined it, complementarianism. Oh, yes. um, yeah. And we're not, we're not going to define it because <laughs> we want you to do your homework and to go look it up yes. if you don't know what it means. Um, Polite it is, patriarchy. It is a bit of a buzzword these days. <laughs> but I do want to say this. I want to say this to my friends, particularly my male friends who might be sitting out there going, oh, God. Or maybe hopefully you made it to this point in the podcast where you would even hear this. Um, but instead of getting mad... Um, or I would even say concerned. Oh my gosh, I'm concerned about Brett and Emily and their faith. I'm concerned about Beth and baby. They've <laughs> been concerned about. Our I know, faith, I know. But, but honey. hold on, let me let me finish. <laughs> don't get mad and don't get concerned, because because I used to be the guy that got mad at people like me, and I would get so pissed at me, and yeah. I would I would be able to refute me with the best of them. Mm-hmm. And with slicing and piercing proof text of how I am heretical. And all I would ask you to do, if that's you, and you probably don't even know it's you, but I'm telling you, it's some of you out there. Um, don't get mad. Don't get concerned. Yes. Get curious. Yes. Just get curious. Because even in your curiosity, if it brings you back to the position you started with, great. Maybe you just won't be so mad about it. Um, but get curious before you get mad. And I think maybe that might help us dialogue a little better. It might help us relate to each other a little better and to not be against. Let's, Jesus is not about being against. He's about being yes. with and for. So let's do that. And let's be curious in yes, our efforts to do that. That's great. All right, I'm done. Um, hopefully people will listen and read and think. Mm-hmm. Beth, where can we, where can our listeners yeah. order this book and how do they, how do they get it? April 20th, I think is yes, what you said April is the release date. Is the release date. Just in time yeah. for, yeah, right. Well, order it before. Gosh, um, it's coming up. It can up. be ordered anywhere now, actually. So you can find it. Um, in fact, um, uh, Fabled's, you can pre-order it from Fabled for us people in Waco. Yay. So that's where I would say first to go to do it. You can also order it straight from the Baker bookstore, um, but also from Amazon and Target and Walmart and Barnes and & Noble and really anywhere you can find it now. So, If people want to find more of your writing, how can they get in yeah, touch with your blog the post? Anxious Bench. Um, on Pathios. Mm -hmm. And if you just type in my name, Beth Allison Barr, Anxious Bench, you'll immediately go to my page and you'll, I mean, you'll be, you'll be able to see my posts that I've had um, and pull them up. And um, as I said, there's a history in those. You can follow, you can see my argument building (laughs) throughout my posts. I love it. I love it. Well, we need your voice. And I know that birthing a book is not an easy labor process. And so thank you for your diligence and your fortitude to complete the work. And um, I'm really, really hopeful. Like I said, I'm going to be ordering a few more copies and sending this out to just several friends and also church leaders that I think could be really, really helpful. Thanks y'all. Thanks for having me on and thank you for letting me be a part of supporting your work. So thanks Beth. We'll see you around the carpool line. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment for more info on our work. Visit Jesus.